You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System, and I want to start out by saying a huge thank you to all of our dedicated listeners. Today's topic is going to follow up on the influx of research and proclamations about the future of celiac disease. How do we as patients learn how to process the relevance of research in our own lives? How do we know what's important for us? And how do we understand the significance of the research and how it could potentially affect us in the long run? To discuss this very important topic, we have Dr. Ritu Verma from the University of Chicago Celiac Disease Center in the studio. Dr. Verma is a leading expert in celiac disease and is passionate about integrating current research and therapies in clinical care to provide the most innovative treatment for patients. Dr. Verma sat down for this conversation with one of our podcast co-hosts, Ellen Wilcox, at the recent DC Gluten-Free Education Day. So welcome, Ellen and Dr. Verma, to the studio. Dr. Verma, thank you for being here today. Entirely my pleasure. Thank you. So to start out our conversation, I'd like to get your thoughts on new drugs that are in development to treat celiac disease. What should patients think about this? Is this something that's really going to help us save us, or should we really just focus on sticking to the gluten-free diet we know? So I believe that... um, the medications may not be for everyone. Uh, just like you know, anything in life, we have a choice. And I do believe that we need to get some medications in the pipeline to give us another choice. If some people would prefer to stay entirely on a gluten-free diet, um, that's totally fine, except we do know that the gluten-free diet itself has a lot of pitfalls. Um, So I do totally believe that we need to head towards research, towards other choices for celiac disease. And so in some cases, the answer might be both medicine and a gluten-free diet, I suppose, to fully protect. I would... It's probably going to head in that direction where there will not be one answer for everyone. Um, And I do believe that, you know, looking at science, we probably will not have a medicine in the very near future that is going to replace the gluten-free diet. I think it is augmentation of what we are doing to keep us even more safe and healthy. Do you feel it's important for patients to read about new developments and research and therapies, and, and why would that be? You know, if we don't if we don't look outside the window, we'll never see what the world is doing. Um, so it truly is looking at where is the world going, and we should own our disease. You know, we have the we have celiac disease. We need to own it. We need to know where it's going. What are the developments? Uh, we send our children to school to learn more. We should be learning more about our condition as well. And what advice do you have for patients about how to educate themselves about? their health conditions, specifically celiac disease or others, and what new options may be out there for them? You know, there's so much information um, out, especially with social media the way it is, um, that it does get overwhelming. So it's really important for the patient to 
first of all, sit down and maybe make some notes as far as what's important for them. And then go, I mean, if you're looking at things like clinical trials and uh, things like that, you want to go to a source that we know is reliable, looking at the clinicaltrials.gov, uh, where you can at least get information as far as what is in the pipeline. It may not give you the total information, but at least it'll be the starting point. So is that one way that patients can look for what's new for their particular health condition? Are there other ways? Yeah, so that is really only looking for what are the clinical trials out there in the country and in the world, and it's really for any disease process at all. Um, the you know, there are some advocacy groups out there that have good information, but the best thing would be really to take that information and have a discussion with your team um, so they can help guide you as well and not get so overwhelmed and bogged down with the information. I can tell you I've done that. I've printed out studies and brought them to my doctor and, and asked about them, and it's it has been very helpful. Sometimes he or she has been able to give me some context for what it the findings mean in a way that's more relevant to me. Absolutely. And, you know, I think bringing the information to your team is probably the best way to do that and have a dialogue. So do you have any advice about approaching a physician or clinician with this type of information? You know, what are questions that a patient should ask? So, you know, I am a, a pediatric gastroenterologist and I always welcome those questions, but I'll tell you what's really helpful is two things. So one is to send a message ahead of time during for the appointment. And sometimes the appointment should be, I just need to have a discussion. And it, the physician can decide whether it's going to be a phone call discussion, if it's just about something, or is it in the office. Um, these days, you know, each clinician is so... Um, focused on the number of patients you have to see, the clinician has. So it's always great to have a warning ahead of time that this visit is going to be longer so the clinician can actually say, okay, you know about how about we set up another time, we'll have a discussion. Um, so having prompting or letting the team know that this is not going to be just a visit to look at my labs and health, but this is going to be more my mental health and my educational health um, is very helpful. Uh, it's also very helpful if you come in as a patient with a clearly defined goal of what you want. And that clear defined could be, look, I'm overwhelmed, I need you to help me. And that could be as clear as that. <laughs> okay, thank you. I know some patients um, may get worried about bringing information to their um, physician or clinician that the they might get offended or be dismissive of the questions that you're asking. Do you have any advice for patients who are concerned about that? Um, so your physician should be in your corner. And if your physician is dismissive, then it's time to find another person. And the person could be dismissive either because he or she does not have enough knowledge about that condition or he or she does not have enough time, um, or he or she is just, that's their personality, they don't want to have that discussion, then he or she should not be on your team. Or could be, maybe there's someone, some other team member that you could then go out to an educator in the group or something like that. But honestly, every physician, it is part of our job that we need to be helpful in terms of how to sift through this information there. So if the person, is dismissive, then you need to dismiss that person. Okay. 
All right, thank you. Uh, do you have any advice for patients as they're just looking at like new research sometimes comes up with surprising results in the field? And do you have any thoughts on how to best, you know, kind of like take that in and think about what it might mean for you? So any research, any new research or any new findings or anything new that uh, debunks all ideas and myths is always scary. It is extremely scary for everyone. So again, in that case, it's usually a good idea to really read what's come out from the official sources, whether it's the journal or anything like that. Read it first and then go on social media and look at the comments and then Take that to your team to have them help you go through that. Always look at it and sit back and say, you know, okay, let me think about it in a very practical manner rather than getting overwhelmed by the hysteria from social media or anything like that. Be your own judge rather than having others influence you. And then if it gets to be too much, stop everything and go back to your team. Well, I'm, think, I'm mindful of a recent study by Children's National Hospital that showed that some of the risks of cross-contamination in some instances may be less than previously thought, which was certainly surprising for me to read. So as patients are looking at this, you know, what should they do? Uh, so again, I think it was that study was uh, the results were exciting, scary, and liberating in a way. Um, you know, we've always, as clinicians or researchers, we go down one path, and sometimes it's word of mouth. Um, you know, we all know scientifically, yes, if you put some gluten in a gluten-free food, it shouldn't be gluten-free anymore. But this is the one time there actually has been some real research and science done here behind this. So yes, it's really scary that, oh my goodness, I don't need a second toaster. Um, and so therefore it's scary, but I think you need to sit back and look at it in a very rational way. And if it doesn't work for you, don't do it. Absolutely nobody is telling you that you've got to do it. Don't do it, but think about it and say, well, you know what, maybe this will make my quality of life a little bit better. When I read the study, I was reminded of when I was first diagnosed with celiac many years ago. Um, the thought was, don't have any vinegar. You can't yes. have vinegar yes. and other things of that nature. Right. And then studies came out and showed that it was Right. Okay. And this way, you, everyone in the gluten-free world is, you know, a little bit more. You can expand your diet a little bit more. And I can tell you, you know, there was this, uh, we used to always say, um, Babies should not be given food, peanuts early, um, or you should wait many years. And then we found the science behind it is that if you delay the onset of giving peanuts, the actual peanut allergy increases. And I've been seeing the same with when to introduce gluten. To yeah, so that again right? is muddy waters in terms of when you do. But when, you know, when the allergist started telling people that you should introduce peanut early, it was the same reaction. Oh my God, I'm not doing that because it's going to increase. Yet when you look at all the research, and so now people have changed. Now people do introduce. So this will also take time. But initially when that came out in the allergy world about peanuts, there was the same sort of reaction because it's what we've learned all our life. So we are, we're asking you to change that thought process. Um, so it will take time, but I think people should relax and look at it in a very calm manner and then say, okay, this is for me or it's not for me. 
Well, Dr. Verma, thank you so much for joining us today and talking to us about all of this. It's so important and so educational for, for me and for our listeners as well, I hope. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Vermer, for all of this excellent information, and also to Ellen for joining us in the studio today. Well, folks, we are all out of time. We hope that you really enjoyed this interesting discussion and that it will hopefully empower you as patients or parents or people with celiac disease to take a more active role in your treatment and care. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next time.